Galatians 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 15, but let me pray. Our Father, we have um, we've, we've just sung a prayer <clears throat> that now we want to repeat, that you would give us sight, that you would be um, all that consumes our field of view this morning, that we would be um, so preoccupied with you and knowing you and getting to know you um, that the cares and worries and sorrows and pains and troubles of life would for a little while fade away and we might be more interested in that life which is to come. To that end, we ask Holy Spirit that you would be in this place, that you would be um, working in our hearts and minds, uh, turning on the lights, showing us uh, your character and making us good students, making us men and women and children who are keenly interested in knowing who you are, that you would so work in our hearts, Holy Spirit, that we would, by faith, uh, lay claim to salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we entrust everything that we're doing here this morning to you. Father, we pray that you would be magnified by all that we do. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians 2, um, just 15 and, well, we'll go through 18. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. <clears throat> so, uh, over the last month now, we've moved fairly swiftly through the first chapter of Galatians and most of the second chapter uh, last week, and now it's going to feel like we've just run into molasses because we're going to slow way down and be deliberate and try to make sure we understand all of these little nuances of these verses. Um, but just to bring you up to speed, <clears throat> what I've done is I basically suggested that the thrust of this book, the, well, this epistle, this letter, is a warning of the catastrophic danger we face as Christians of deserting Jesus Christ. And it's a danger that, it, it, and I, we don't want to be paranoid, but in one sense is always looming on the horizon for us, that we would leave aside walking with Jesus in favor of something else. And I, I've said there are at least two ways that this can happen. There are probably dozens, but I think it, it's safe to categorize them in these two ways. The first way, and we've looked at these a little bit briefly each week, and I've tried to kind of add on as we go. The first way 
that we would perhaps desert relationship with Jesus Christ would be on the path uh, diversion into licentiousness. Essentially, licentiousness is believing that the gospel somehow removes all moral requirements from a person, and therefore how we conduct ourselves as Christians has no bearing. It doesn't matter. Um, Any sin we indulge in is easily forgiven, and therefore we are somehow free to sin. Believing that faith alone is somehow insufficient for salvation is legalism. This is the other side. So attaching a moral requirement to faith, which is the opposite of designating no moral requirement to faith, is the other danger that will, the other peril that we might find ourselves stumbling into in abandoning a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not only must we believe in Jesus' atoning work, but we must also keep certain ceremonies and customs in order to be saved. What I've tried to show you, and I think you all are pretty clever and you picked it up the first week, but we just keep rehearsing it every week. What I've tried to show you is that the difference between these two errors, either one, and authentic gospel freedom is that you cannot live in either an error of license or legalism and be in authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. They're contradictory. The issue at hand is one of relationship, not behavior. The reason I think it's so important is because if we don't view the gospel in terms of relationship, listen, if we don't view the gospel in terms of relationship, what you will end up doing is ping-ponging back and forth between these two dangers and never really settling into communion with God in Christ. So we will be one day, let's just say today, the licentious fool wiping our mouths and saying that we've done no wrong when we've sinned. Our lives will be marked with a corresponding depression because our appetite for worldly pleasures is never satisfied by worldly treasures. So the more we consume, the more that we need. We will be disenchanted, isolated, frustrated, and we will live with all of the corresponding emotional hangovers of self-destructive behavior that licentiousness enables us to engage in. So besides the emotional consequences, which is where you wake up, uh, you come to your senses briefly after having indulged in some sin and feel terrible in your heart, there are also physical dangers that come with licentiousness. And I'm not picking on anybody, but you can, you can get fat by drinking all of your calories from scooters and Starbucks, right? I mean, that's a consequence of licentiousness. <laughs> we'll get to you in a minute, Mom. <laughs> you can get liver disease from boozing it up and, and doing drugs. You consume pornography, and you develop an artificial bond emotionally 
with a world that doesn't exist, a place that's not real. All licentious practices eventually lead to a deep feeling of emptiness, loneliness, and empty your real relationships of authenticity and meaning. Because your ultimate pursuit is not to know or be known. Your ultimate pursuit is to satisfy some fleshly desire. Licentious behaviors also trigger addiction cycles in the brain. So you become dependent on the very thing that you were supposedly free to do. You become enslaved to the very thing you took license with. And you are no longer free. And you no longer have license. And then tomorrow, you'll become a legalist. Overwhelmed with a need to perform penance in order to appease God, who must certainly be filled with wrath towards you over the way that you've conducted yourself yesterday. So you'll begin to construct moral standards and establish rigorous religious practices by which you can prove yourself superior to that other scandalous version of you that existed yesterday. Once you've been able to meet these artificial standards, you must then begin to view all those who don't meet those standards as inferior to you. This is because as a legalist, lacking the assurance of salvation which flows from a genuine relationship with Jesus, you have to compare yourself to other people. The only framework you have for morality is taking those who are not as good at your religious pattern as you are and shaming them in your own mind so that you can feel better about yourself. You'll then establish ceremonies which you imagine will enable you to manage the circumstances of your life. So you dress a certain way. You have to park in the same spot at work every day. You have to organize your home in a specific fashion. You have to educate your children in a specific manner. And anybody that doesn't do these things, there's something wrong with them because you're the standard. You have to work with a certain diligence, sacrifice a certain amount, give a certain percentage, spend a certain quantity of your time in Bible study and in prayer. But you do these things in an effort to get God to do something for you in return. Your life will be marked by anxiety, anger, or both because you're trying to be in control rather than in relationship with God. And so the legalist is just as isolated, just as addicted, just as empty emotionally, just as ultimately friendless, and just as deep in bondage as the licentious person. The outcome is almost identical. Whereas, if we are in vital communion with Jesus Christ, the, listen, the standards of righteousness are not performative. If you are in relationship with Jesus Christ, the standards of righteousness are not performative. The measure of our spiritual health is not what we do or do not taste or touch. The measure of our spiritual health is whether or not we are in communion with God. That's the measure. So instead of filling up the emptiness with passing pleasures, what we do is get filled with confidence in the one who made us and pleasures that he gives us to enjoy are not ultimately the place where our affections terminate. 
So when God gives you something to enjoy and you're in relationship with him, the enjoyment of that pleasure causes your affections to go through the pleasure and terminate on the giver. That's what a relationship does. Instead of filling up emptiness with frantic, frenetic religious activity in an effort to control God, we're filled with confidence in the one who loves and manages the details of our lives. So today, what we have to do is seek to understand what it means to be justified. In the weeks to come, what we'll do is see how that justification changes our relationship to the law. But we'll pick it up in verse 15, where Paul says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So what Paul does to open this up is he cites an extinct distinction. Something that doesn't really exist anymore. Even by the time Paul is writing this, this this distinction has been done away with, but he uses it to make a point. Here's the distinction. Prior to the advent of Christ and his work and his ministry and his death, prior to all of that, there was a series of requirements which had to be met by every non-Jew in order to participate in the worship of God. Okay, so if you were born a Jew, there were certain requirements like circumcision, foods that you were not allowed to eat, activities that you were not allowed to engage in, and certain days of the year that had to be set aside and observed in a particular way. And only those who had abstained from the foods and prohibited activities and engaged in all of the prescribed methods of worship along the way would have been permitted to join in temple activities. So Paul makes this statement. We ourselves are Jews and not Gentiles by birth, not Gentile sinners. And the meaning here is very simple. Because of our birth, uh, this is Paul talking, <clears throat> where we were born, how, we're, how we were raised, what we were allowed to do and what we were not allowed to do along the way, it could be assumed by those who were in Jewish society that we were allowed to participate in the worship of God. You have a birthright that kind of comes along with being born a Jew. Of course you were circumcised on the eighth day. Of course you've never eaten pork. Of course, you've never eaten shrimp. You're a Jew. You could look at somebody and see that they were a Jew and understand that that meant there's things they didn't do along the path of life. Because these things could not be assumed about a foreigner, a Gentile, then it was assumed they were a sinner, that they did eat pork, that they weren't circumcised, that they did eat shellfish, that they didn't observe days on the calendar that God had prescribed. So if a Gentile wanted to participate in the worship of God in the temple, they had to go through rigorous scrutiny by the priests and the scribes and prove that they were authentic in their observance of ceremony. There were privileges which a Jew enjoyed that a Gentile could not easily attain. So Paul points this out. We, meaning himself, Peter, James, Barnabas, we were extended the opportunity to participate in worship without much scrutiny. Does that make sense? That's all he's saying. Simply as a consequence of being born a Jew, we didn't have to go to a lot of trouble to indicate to everybody that we were good to go when it came to worshiping God. 
It is not as though Paul actually believed Jews were not sinners. He's using hyperbolic language to establish his point. Verse 16. Even though, so think about it like this. Even though we were born Jews, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in him and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So where verse 15 says, we as Jews enjoyed privileged access to God, which Gentiles did not enjoy. We were law keepers. We were (laughs) circumcised. We didn't eat forbidden foods. We weren't pagans. We didn't worship false gods. We were clean. 16 introduces the whole theme of Paul's gospel, which is, None of that matters. None of our Jewishness has any bearing on whether or not we get to be in relationship with God. Justification is by faith, not works. That doesn't mean anything to you if you don't know what justification is. Right? So now I have to explain what justification is, right? Okay. This is the same definition I always give, so you probably have it from October when I last gave it. And if you have no memory of what I'm about to say, that's okay. I couldn't remember when I had last said it and was surprised to find that I had said it in October when I went back and searched my notes. Justification is the one-time declaration by God that a sinner is righteous. Justification is the one-time declaration by God that a sinner is righteous. So justification is a legal term. The picture that we need to have in our minds if we're going to understand justification is a picture of a courtroom. And you are in the defendant's seat. Okay, And the accuser of the brethren, the devil, has a list of all of your transgressions. And they're not made up. They're not inflated in any way. It's not like he's making it worse than it actually was. In fact, he has video. And he plays this video on a screen for the judge to behold. Your worst moment. Your most despicable, vile, blasphemous, disgusting, sinful selfish moments played on a screen where the judge can see as though God didn't already know that that had happened. The accuser then begins to list all of your proclivities and all of the things that you tend towards. What is the iniquity of this person? What's the bent of their heart? What are they into that they would rather nobody else know about? Where the judge can hear it. And once you have been sufficiently humiliated and your life is played out right in front of you, the worst moments of it, and it's obvious by any standard of morality that you are doomed, the judge, God, points to his broken son and says, this sinner is righteous. Because my son already paid the price. 
And the accuser screams and yells and tears his clothing, spits and vomits because it's unacceptable to him that you would be declared righteous when you aren't. Then the judge says, how dare you argue with me? I said, they are righteous. It's the one time declaration by God that a sinner is just, is righteous because of the forgiving, cleansing, redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And listen, it cannot be undone. That's justification. God the judge declares that we are righteous. So essentially, what Paul is saying in 16 is, you are declared righteous because of your faith in Jesus Christ rather than because of your law keeping. Let's look at it again. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Let's say uh, just one more time real quick. Look at 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So Romans 5, let's, let's turn there for like a complimentary view. Romans chapter 5, verse 15. Interestingly enough, it's the same verses as in Galatians 2, 15 and 16 of Romans 5. <coughs> Excuse me. Romans 5, 15 says, The free gift is not like the trespass. The free gift is not like the trespass. Meaning, the gift of God is not like the sin that you've committed. Okay, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, which means one sin. You commit one sin, and what that brings about is just condemnation from God of your immortal soul to the pit of hell. One sin. And I'm betting we can all acknowledge we've done a lot more than one, right? So that's, the, that's what the trespass is like. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Now, I have one question for you. Looking at Romans 5, 15 and 16, what kind of gift is it? It says it in there. You can see if you look. What kind of gift is it? What kind of gift brings about your justification? Free. Free. All together? Free. Okay, good. So justification is a free gift granted to all who believe in Jesus Christ. Does anybody disagree with that? No. Okay. That's what the Bible says. 17 Galatians 2. If... 
in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law. Yada, yada. We'll stop there. I'm going to work through this a little bit at a time. So tr try to stay plugged in. And that's not me blaming you that I'm boring. I'm just saying I know it's easy to like tune out and tune in. Try to stay with me. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. <coughs> what does that mean? Sorry. <coughs> I quit smoking so much. <laughs> if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. If I called you up here and said, I'm going to sit down, I would like you to explain that. What would you say? Don't say it out loud. It's all right. I just want you to try to think it through. Because if you think it through with me, you'll remember this better. If in our effort or endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, means if by believing that justification is a free gift of God, we're sinning, which is what a part of all of us believes. Right. It can't be that good. Right. Free declaration from God because of the work Jesus did. I'm righteous. That's too good to be true. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, could be said, if because we are depending on Christ's free gift, rather than on law-keeping for justification, meaning we eat pork, we don't get circumcised, we start having church on Sunday instead of on Saturday, and as a result of those behaviors, somebody out there accuses us of being in sin, what they are essentially doing, look at the text, is Christ then a servant of sin? This temptation that you have to think that you need to append Christ's righteousness with your own contribution by obeying the works of the law is the same as saying Christ was a sinner. His work was insufficient, and I must add my own to it. The only way that what Jesus already did is insufficient the only way that what Jesus already did might be insufficient would be if he were a little bit sinful. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So if I go back and start obeying the law in order to be saved, that's how I prove myself to be unjustified. The law does not exist for me to obey it and become righteous by doing so. Let me say it again. The law does not exist as a means for us to become righteous. Let me say it again another way. God does not intend for us to purify ourselves by keeping the law. Let me say it a fourth way. The law is not the Christian's means of becoming pleasing to God. Let me try a fifth way. You keeping the law does not add one ounce of righteousness to your account in the sight of God. 
That's what he's trying to tell us. Paul is basically saying keeping the law as a means of becoming righteous is sinful. Keeping the law as a means of becoming righteous is sinful. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And by the way, he's not talking about the ceremonial law. You might recall from last week, I said we can divide the 613 Old Testament commandments into three basic categories. One, ceremonial. This is all of the things that people had to do in order to worship God the way God wanted to be worshipped. Second was civil or judicial. If you steal, this is what you have to do to make up for it. If you murder, this is what happens. If you commit adultery, this is what happens. Third was, was moral. And what I said last week was that the ceremonial laws have been done away with in Christ. Completely done away with. We, we, we need to pay no attention to that other than to go, oh man, they had it way rougher before Jesus came along, right? That's what the ceremonial law teaches us. But what that means is that the moral law still stands as binding on us as God's creatures. If it's not been done away with, it must be binding on us. So the commandments, first table of the law, this is how you are to view God and worship God, right? No idols, don't take his name in vain, keep the Sabbath holy. Second table of the law, this is how you're supposed to interact with one another. Don't lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery, bear false witness. Like, and then Jesus sums them up this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's first. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's second. And then what I said was, John modifies that in Christ a little bit so that it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is first. And then second is love your neighbor as Christ has loved you sacrificially. Not waiting for your pound of flesh when somebody sins against you. Not demanding that other people come and apologize when you feel that they've wronged you somehow. Fully, freely, lovingly forgiving, right? The way that you've been fully, freely loved and forgive. Take it to the bank. Someone that needs a pound of flesh in order to be in relationship with you because you screwed up at some point is somebody who does not have their own authentic walk with Jesus Christ. Uh, that was a major tangent. Okay, so the moral law is still binding on us, but I'm saying no one is made righteous by keeping any of the law. Ceremonial, moral, civil, that, that doesn't make you righteous. It's not the function of the law, period. Not even the moral law. Justification is not, you are declared innocent as long as you never do that again. That's not justification. Justification is not, you are declared innocent provided you meet these legal requirements going forward. That's not justification. You're declared innocent as long as you maintain a credit score of 775. <laughs> That's not justification. Justification is not bankruptcy. And I think that's how we think about it. As though what happens is we come before God having accumulated more debt than we can possibly pay back. And he says, all right, I'm going to forgive you all of that. But anything you accumulate going forward, you're going to have to pay for. 
That's not justification. The moral law is not a means of maintaining your justification. The moral law is not a, how should I say this? A means of maintaining your justification. Let me say it a different way. The moral law is not a means of maintaining your justification. If God declares you just, who is going to declare you unjust? So then what the heck does the moral law exist for? How is it binding on us? What is the function of it? Well, it's threefold. And I want to say that the primary use of the law is something we'll get into a lot in the end of chapter 3. If you just want to glance at verse 24 of chapter 3, the law was our guardian or teacher until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian or being taught. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So what's the function of the remaining law if it's not designed to make us more righteous? Well, I think it's three things that it does. First, it's a mirror. The law shows us our sinfulness by contrast. So think about it like this. Uh, And I'm sure this has happened to everybody and not just me. When you're on a road trip in an unfamiliar place and you don't know precisely what the speed is in that place on a highway, you have to pay close attention to the speed limit signs, right? But none of us are as diligent as we hope to be. And so what happens is the first sign that tells you the speed has been reduced by 20 miles an hour goes by and you don't notice it. And so you're doing 65 and a 45. And then all of a sudden you take a curve and you're like, whoa, that was difficult. And then you see a sign that says 45 and you immediately think, how long have I been transgressing? When did the speed limit get reduced? And I didn't know it. The law shows you your sin by contrast. Here's the standard. Here's what you're doing. And then gives you the opportunity to try to bring what you're doing into submission to the law. Right? So that's one. Very simply, the law is showing you, here's how you're a sinner. Here's what God expects. Here's what you're doing. Do you see the difference? It's convicting, right? This is what draws us to Christ kind of to begin with. Romans 3, 19 and 20 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law exists to shut everybody up. You're not awesome. You're not kind of doing okay. It's terrible, shameful what you've been doing. Verse 20 says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. So this is function number one of the law. Make sinners aware of their sinfulness. Second, the law restrains evil by its threats of judgment. So before you murder that person, you might want to stop and think about what the consequences of being caught having murdered that person will be. And if you think about the consequences of what you're about to do, it might stop you from doing it. Do you want to get the gas chamber or however they do it now? Lethal injection? Not so much. Well, then don't do that. Don't stab that or shoot that person, right? I'm going to rob this bank. 
because I, I want money, so I'm going to rob the bank. Well, if you rob the bank, odds are you're going to get caught because there's like video cameras everywhere, and then you're going to go to prison and have a relationship that you don't want to have with somebody. <laughs> so maybe don't rob the bank. And you go, you know what, that's a good point. I'm not going to rob the bank. When you're a kid, I'm going to sneak out and, and go party, okay? Well, you can do that. The problem is your parents might have installed something on your phone that you don't know about that alerts them when you leave a certain area in the middle of the night and you're going to get busted and you're going to get grounded and then you won't have any car keys. I'll just stay home then. Good call, right? That's, a, that's one of the functions of the law. It sets out for us threats of judgment so that we maybe rethink what we were going to do. It also protects the righteous because those who are unrighteous will only yield to the threat of the law. Otherwise, they would completely rob you blind and take everything you have and not think anything of it. But there's the threat of punishment that protects you from that and so on. We good? I realize that that's getting harder that's getting harder to illustrate because we live in a culture which has a diminishing value on the threats of judgment, right? right? But that's still the design. Third, the law guides the people of God in works that God desires from them. So the law tells us what pleases God so that we may be obedient to him. This is because obviously once you are saved from sin and you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you want to live in a manner that's pleasing to God. But you're not expected to just like feel your way through that. He tells you, this is what your life will look like now that you're in relationship with me. These are the things that I expect you to do as one of my children. So the law exists to guide, directing us away from behaviors which are not pleasing to God, which are dangerous and self-destructive behaviors and lead to fear and shame and guilt accumulating in our hearts. Two behaviors that bring about the greatest satisfaction in your heart. Don't do that. Do this instead. Okay. Easy enough. Listen. It is not a guide to generating your own righteousness. The moral law is not a means of maintaining your own righteousness, nor is the moral law a means of adding to the righteousness which Christ has already given you. So these are the three functions of the law. Be a light and a mirror, which shows a person exactly what they look like left to themselves so that they might be drawn to need justification from God who is holy. Second, restrain evil by threats of judgment. Third, guide the regenerate in works of obedience. That's it. That's why it exists. Not to save you through rigorous observance. Back in Galatians 2, 16, just uh, the last 11 words. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one. So listen, please. I'm almost done. Oh, I forgot to. I think I forgot last week too. 40 minutes. This is out of control. I'm sorry. <laughs> God is not disappointed with you. 
God is not think you should be further along than you are. He is not in love with a future version of you that does a better job of keeping the law than you've been doing. He isn't staring at you, waiting for you to screw up so that he can rescind your justification. He did not call you onto a performance gauntlet. Christianity is not like spiritual American ninja warrior. It's not what we're doing here. He's calling you into relationship with himself. And for the believer, the law is a beautiful guide to us to thrive in that relationship with God. This is why the psalmist can say, oh, I love your law. It's like honey on my lips because there's no condemnation in it. It directs us to what's pleasing to him. It teaches us what delights him. It makes us aware of how much we need his mercy and grace. That's what the law does. I don't study my wife to keep her from divorcing me. That may be a small part but it's not the main reason. I want to know what she loves and what she enjoys and what brings her pleasure because I want to be in relationship with her. I don't study my kids and what they enjoy to keep them from putting me in a, like a crappy nursing home when I'm older. <laughs> right? I, I'm, I study them and what they enjoy because I want to be in relationship with them. I don't study my friends because I, I'm afraid they're going to get bored with me if I don't stay up on what they're into. I study my friends because I'm in relationship with them and I want that relationship to be enhanced. Why would we study this as though God were going to hate us for not studying it enough? Why would we seek to obey this as though God is constantly threatening to cut us off? We're not justified by our works, but by faith. And that means relationship with God. And that's the difference. Amen.